the following message entitled, How to Be Satisfied, Part 2 of the series, The Beatitudes, was given by Mark Altrogi on January 5, 2014 at Sovereign Grace Church of Indiana, Pennsylvania. To learn more about our church, please visit sgcindianapa.org. Thanks for coming, everybody. There are so many of you, as I look out there, that I have not had the opportunity to meet. I would love to be able to meet as many of you as I could. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here at Sovereign Grace Church. Thank you for coming. Why, why are you here? Why did you come? <laughs> I know why. Because you love Jesus. I heard... I've heard all kinds of rumors about how cold it's supposed to get this week. First I heard 5 degrees, and then somebody said with a wind chill, 20 degrees. And then Jonathan Mader just said, yeah, 20 below. And then Jonathan Mader just told me it's supposed to be with wind chill, 40 below. So I'm just going to stay in my bed on Tuesday. So if you need any help or anything like that, you can call one of the other guys. It'll be under my blankets. <laughs> Forty below. Has it ever been that cold here? Okay. All right. Okay, well, we are in week two of a series on the Beatitudes. This week's title is How to Be Satisfied. How to Be Satisfied. People go through all kinds of hardship for rewards promised at the end. I mean, think about it. Athletes train for thousands of hours in hopes of getting a ribbon or a ring. I mean, really, they they go through all kinds of agony and torture and working out and running and training for this reward at the end, which to them would be worth it, the honor or the glory. Some business people travel thousands of miles and work innumerable hours for the promise of success and wealth. I read a book a few years ago that people paid $60,000 for a guide and risked their lives, and some even died in pursuit of the reward of climbing the 29,000 feet to the top of Mount Everest. $60,000 just for the guide and then you die. I don't know. It doesn't seem worth it. (laughs) $65,000, even if you made it to the top, I guess it's worth it if you have that kind of money to spend on climbing Mount Everest. But the question to ask is, is it really worth it to be a Christian? Is it worth enduring whatever suffering we must endure? Because Jesus promised that His followers would have to endure many kinds of trials and hardships and afflictions. Is it worth it? Really? Is it worth going through whatever Jesus takes it through? Well, last week we began looking at Jesus' teachings that are called the Beatitudes. And He begins each one with the word blessed or happy. Yet, the first part of each one of the Beatitudes seems painful 
or at least not desirable. Being poor in spirit or lowly in spirit. Mourning. Hungering and thirsting, which we're going to look at today. Blessed. You're blessed if you hunger and thirst. You're blessed if you are meek. This just doesn't seem to make sense. Is it really worth it? That's the question. But the second half of each of the Beatitudes is the reward. That's where Jesus said it's worth it. The poor in spirit receive the kingdom of heaven. That's a whole lot better than the top of Mount Everest. The kingdom of heaven. Every blessing. All the riches of Jesus, He says. Come to the poor in spirit. The meek shall inherit the earth. Not just Mount Everest, but the whole earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be satisfied infinitely, completely, thoroughly, totally satisfied. The kingdom of heaven, the earth, ultimate and complete satisfaction. Yeah, I'd say it's worth it. If I told you that to do something really hard, really painful, would bring you complete and everlasting total satisfaction, it would be worth it. Even if it meant a lot of pain for a while. Well, the devil and the world tell us the opposite. They say The devil and the world says, sin is what satisfies. Possessions is what will satisfy you. Partying, having fun, having new toys, having a boyfriend, having a girlfriend, having a career. This is what will satisfy you. You you young men and young women, the world is going to tell you that a lot of things will satisfy you. They're going to say this Christianity stuff is like an old outdated game. But this, the world, it's like a new Xbox. Obeying your dad and mom, oh, that's, that's boring. But the world, obeying your dad and mom, that's like watching an old black and white movie. But the world, what I have to offer you, it's like a 3D movie with surround sound. That's what the world is constantly telling us. That's what the devil told Adam and Eve. Oh, obeying God, not eating this fruit... That's, why do you want to do that? Eat this fruit. That's going to satisfy you. Disobey God. God's holding out on you. This obeying God stuff is boring. It's not satisfying. And what happened when they ate the fruit? They lost paradise. They lost their relationship with God. And what did they gain by eating the fruit? Misery and death Pain and misery and death. Adam and Eve didn't trust God. They listened to the world. And they they went for an immediate thing instead of waiting for God's ultimate satisfaction. We have to look past the glitter of the world. We have to look past it when we're suffering. We have to look past it when things are hard. And see the promised blessedness that Jesus has said we will have when we trust His promises and do what He says. There's a commentator named William Hendrickson, and he says that Jesus is saying in these Beatitudes 
that though everybody may consider his followers to be the most wretched and unfortunate, and though they themselves are by no means always filled with optimism regarding their own condition, in the sight of heaven and by the standards of its kingdom, they are happy indeed. Yes, happy in the most exalted sense of the term. Hence, superlatively blessed. Not only is this true because of the blessings in store for them in the future, but even because of their present state. Listen to this. Already, already, heaven's favor is resting upon them. Right at this moment, the light of their future bliss is beginning to engulf them. Even now, no matter how despised they may be, this is true. For the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon them. As I was preparing this message, I was thinking about Christians who are persecuted in the world. And in North Korea, Christians are placed into prison camps. And they're miserable and they're cold and they're beaten and they're tortured. And yet Jesus says, they're blessed. And that someday that blessedness will be fully realized and the world will be shifted around. And those who are torturing them will be the ones who are suffering. We can remember that today. Last week we heard that Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what He meant was when we realize our spiritual poverty and turn to God, God gives us all the blessings of heaven. But we've got to realize we need God. We've got to realize we're spiritually poor. And Jesus also said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And when we mourn over our sins, and we mourn over the sins of others, and we mourn over many sad things, yet Jesus said His followers can experience God's comfort now, but especially in heaven. Today we're going to look at verse 5 and 6 in the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, 5 and 6. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now the Beatitudes, I want us to just say this so we understand this. The Beatitudes describe the character of the citizens of the Kingdom of Heaven and the blessedness that they experience. They're not describing how we get into the Kingdom of Heaven. They're describing what it's like to be in the Kingdom of Heaven and the character that Jesus forms in us. We enter the Kingdom not by trying to be a certain way, but by receiving the free gift of salvation that Jesus purchased on the cross. We receive this as a gift by faith. And then the Spirit of God comes into us. Jesus places His own Spirit into us. And He begins to work in us and produce the character of the Kingdom, the character of Jesus Christ in us. And we can't produce the character of Jesus in us in our own strength. But we cooperate with the Holy Spirit. We cooperate with God. And we work out our salvation as God works in us. And so, we pursue these things. And we become more and more like these things that we're talking about in the Beatitudes. 
But I don't want to give anybody the, the idea that when I say these Beatitudes describe the character of someone who is in the kingdom, that we do this in our own strength. No, we don't do this in our own strength. And that's why we need to read the Bible, meditate, pray, ask God to help us, and He will change us. And so let's, let's pray. Lord, we are going to do this right now. We, we admit that we cannot change ourselves in our own strength. We are weak. And apart from You, and apart from Your Spirit, we would completely fail. But Lord, we ask You to change us. And we ask You to change us by Your Word, by Your power, by Your Spirit. Lord, change us and make us like what we study today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Thank You, Lord. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now these would have been shocking words to Jesus' followers. For many, many years, the people of Israel had been oppressed by other nations. They were currently oppressed by the Romans when Jesus was preaching. And they were looking for a Messiah who would come and overthrow their enemies by power. Place them in a position of freedom. Now Jesus is telling them to be meek, to be gentle, to be submissive. These would have been shocking words. They're shocking to us because our world tells us, assert yourself. Put yourself forward. If you want anything, you've got to really go for it. You've got you to grab for all the gusto you can get. You've got you to use force. You've got to assert yourself. Be aggressive. Jesus says, blessed are the meek. What does it mean to be meek? Well, Jesus, when He is preaching, He is thinking of Psalm 37. And so it would be, it would be a good exercise to read Psalm 37 this week. Now, Jesus, this is, think about this. Jesus, as He was growing up, His Bible was the Old Testament. He would have read the Psalms. He would have read Psalm 37 and be thinking about it. He would have heard Psalm 37. He would have been thinking, how does Psalm 37 apply to me? Jesus, even though He was fully God, He was also fully man. And in His human nature, He grew in wisdom. And He read the Bible. And He quoted the Bible. And He's quoting Psalm 37 when He says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Because Psalm 37.11 says, But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Now Psalm 37 is a comparison of the way the wicked are versus the way God's people should be. And so I, I don't, I'm not going to read the whole psalm, but it talks about the wicked. A couple things it says that the wicked do. Verse 12, the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. Verse 14, the wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy to slay those whose way is upright. Verse 21, the wicked borrows but does not pay back. Verse 32, the wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. 
But over and over in Psalm 37, God says, don't fret yourself because of the wicked. Don't be like them. Listen to what God tells the righteous to do. What He promises them. Verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. Verse 8, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. And then he, he talks about evildoers again. He says, for the evildoers shall be cut off in the end. But those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land. See, there it is again. The meek shall inherit the earth. The meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Verse 27, turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever. Verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep His way and He will exalt you to inherit the land and you will look on when the wicked are cut off. Here's what Psalm 37 is saying. There's two ways to live. The wicked are always plotting and scheming how to get more of this world. They plot against God's people. They hate God's people. They are assertive. They are aggressive. They hide. They wait take down God's people. They harm and abuse God's people. And that's, that's, that's what Adolf Hitler did. He not only persecuted the Jews, he persecuted Christians. That's, that's, that's what the president of North Korea is doing. They, they are abusing God's people. Maybe people at work abuse you. Maybe there are people who don't like you because they know you're a believer. We've had folks in our church who had people at work who just did not like them and it was because they believed in Jesus. And God says to His people, says, don't be like that. You be meek. Don't fret about the wicked. Don't take revenge when they abuse you. Trust Me. Look to Me. Wait for Me. Be meek. Delight yourself in Me. Commit your way to Me. You don't have to assert yourself. You don't have to rise up and, and push back and fight for yourself. I'll take care of the wicked. They go after the world. They do whatever it takes to get it. Don't go after the world. You go after Me. And I'll give you what you need of the world. And someday I'll give you the whole world. That's what he's saying. So who are the meek? Remember what we read? Those who trust in the Lord. Those who delight in the Lord. Those who commit their way to the Lord. Those who rest in the Lord. See, Jesus, when He was abused, Jesus has all power. Jesus is the all-powerful, almighty one. And Jesus was abused. And He didn't abuse back. He, he was, it says He was like a sheep before His accusers. He was, he was meek. Jesus Himself is our example of meekness. It says He came in. Your king comes riding on a donkey. Meek. Gentle. And Jesus says, 
you be like me. You got to trust God to do it. See, an Old Testament example of meekness is Joseph. Here's, here's an example of what Jesus means by being meek. Joseph, his brothers, sold him into slavery in Egypt. But he was meek. He trusted God. He didn't try to escape his slavery. He didn't try to bring down his master behind his back. He served his Egyptian master and God blessed him and his master promoted him to rule his whole house. But the wicked plot against the righteous. And so this, his master's wife tried to seduce Joseph. Joseph stayed true to God. He wouldn't give in. So she falsely accused him of assaulting her and his master threw him into jail unjustly. There it is again. He could have risen up. He could have screamed. He was meek. In meekness, he's in prison unjustly. He kept trusting God and serving others. And God promoted him in prison. Then after many years, God frees him from prison and promotes him and exalts him to the number two position in all Egypt. See? Trust the Lord. You'll inherit the earth. Jesus, God promotes Joseph. And when his brothers come in a famine looking for food, they don't know that Joseph is in the position he's in. He doesn't do what the world would have done. He doesn't take revenge. Instead, in meekness, he pours out blessings upon them. This is what meekness is. It is not weakness. It is strength in God. It is finding strength in God and not taking revenge and trusting God to take care of you. And God will meet our needs and give us the earth in the end. What does it mean we inherit the earth? Well, in this life, it means that when we trust God in every situation, He'll meet our needs. We don't have to aggressively assert ourselves to get all we can of this earth. God will give us all we need of this earth when we trust Him. And so Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, 31 and following, He says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But... Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. See that word added? That means as we are meek, as we trust God, He gives them to us without us having to go after them. He adds them to us. That's why Jesus says the meek shall inherit the earth. You don't work for an inheritance. You just get it free by virtue of relationship. See, in Hebrews 10.34, that's why the author of Hebrews could say, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. See, that's meekness. That's meekness. They were persecuted. The, 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 the readers of the book of Hebrews, the Hebrews were persecuted, and some of them even had property unjustly stolen from them by the wicked. And they didn't rise up and say, this is not fair, I'm coming back and I'm getting my property and I'm coming to your house and I'm going to burn your house down. No. Somehow, in God, they were able to joyfully accept 
the plundering of their property, knowing that they had a better and lasting and abiding possession. And that's Jesus. If we have, if we have Jesus, we have the whole earth. We have everything. And ultimately, someday, we will inherit the new heaven and the new earth. Revelation 21.1 Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Someday, those who believe in Jesus will be given new, immortal, glorified bodies that won't be subject to sickness or pain or death. And we will live in a new earth, in a new heaven. And we will inherit it by virtue of our relationship to Jesus. Romans 8, 19-21 says, For the creation waits Eager, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God in our new bodies, in our new glorious bodies. For the creation, the world was subject to futility. That's why it's going to be 40 below. <laughs> the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. See, when God creates a new heaven and a new earth, there won't be any sin or any effects of sin in the earth. There won't be any disease. There won't be any death. There won't be anything going wrong. It will be free from its subjection to corruption. It's waiting. Even the creation is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Someday there will be a big reveal. All of the angels in heaven will say, Move that bus! <laughs> if you know what I'm talking about. And God will reveal the new heaven and the new earth and He will reveal all of us in our glorious bodies. will shine with the glory of Jesus. And we will inherit the earth. But now we must be meek. We must trust God. We must not fret over the wicked. We must look to Him and delight in God. Theologian A.W. Pink says, The meek are those who have the greatest enjoyment of the good things of the present life. Delivered from a greedy and grasping spirit, they are content with such things as they have. And then he quotes Psalm 37 again. A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. He says contentment, contentment of mind is one of the fruits of meekness of spirit. The proud and the restless do not inherit the earth though they may own many acres of it. Contentment of mind is one of the fruits of meekness of spirit. Spurgeon says there was an old lady and all she had was a crust of bread. And she said, what? All this and Christ besides? 
We have Jesus. We have the earth. And someday we will inherit the new earth. Jesus also says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Verse 6, Before Jesus saves us, we are not righteous. We are spiritually bankrupt. But Christ, Jesus died as our substitute to give us His righteousness. And so when He paid for our sins by His blood, not only does He wash our sins away, but He credits us, God the Father credits us with the very righteousness of Jesus. The perfect life Jesus lived. All of Jesus' obedience. God counts to us as if we had done it. And God declares us righteous in His sight. And so Romans 5.19 says, For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So when we turn to Jesus, even though we are bankrupt, even though we have sinned many, many ways, when we turn to Jesus, God credits the righteousness of Jesus to us and declares us to be righteous in Christ. But, Jesus says, we're to hunger and thirst for righteousness. So what does He mean? He means that even though God has declared us to be righteous, now we must put that righteousness into practice. We must live righteously. We must hunger and thirst to obey God. And we must hunger and thirst to live in a way that pleases God and to live in what would be be called in God's sight a righteous life. To live righteously. And so Jesus says, Jesus said to His followers, listen to this, He said this in Matthew 6, verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And then a few verses later, he said, or in, in Matthew 5, he says, For I tell you, verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus didn't say, you're righteous by God's decree, so you don't have to practice righteousness. He says, no, practice righteousness. Practice it, but don't do it to be seen by people. Don't do your righteousness to be honored by men, but yes, do righteous things. We're supposed to be zealous for good deeds. Zealous for good works. We're supposed to be righteous and practice righteousness. See, the Pharisees talked about righteousness, but they didn't do it. They, they did righteous things at times so that others would see them and clap and think they were great. But they didn't have a heart for it. And Jesus says, not only must you practice it, you must hunger and thirst for it in your heart. Hunger, hunger and thirst are powerful sensations. Once, once I went without food and water for three days. And by, oh, probably by about two hours into the first day, it was all I could think about. But especially by the third day, all I could think about was 
I am so thirsty! I can't wait. That's all I could think about. Somebody's talking to me, I'm saying, oh, that's nice. I am thirsty. I can't even think about what you're saying to me. I am hungering and thirsty. And boy, when that, when that third day was over, I was guzzling. See, these are powerful. Jesus says we should have this kind of passion for holiness and righteousness. And so in 2 Corinthians 7.1, he says, since, Paul says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. See, we can't say, hey, all my sins are forgiven. All my sins that I ever will commit are forgiven. So it doesn't matter how I live. No. No, no. Paul says, we have God's promises, so let us do all we can do to cleanse ourselves. Stop sinning. Turn away from sinning. Ephesians 4, 22-24 Put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. See, we are to actively, when he says put off, put on, we are to put off the kind of behaviors that are sinful and unrighteous and put on holy behavior. Do things. Take action. First Thessalonians 4, 3-8 For this is the will of God, your sanctification, or your being made holy like Christ that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. And verse 7, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Holiness, righteousness, is not an option. If, if, if we give into impurity and unrighteousness of any kind, we are denying, we're disregarding God and His Holy Spirit. He saved us to make us holy like He is. Impurity in every form of unholiness belongs to our former manner of life. And righteousness is not limited to sexual purity. We want to hunger and thirst for righteousness in all of life. Righteousness in all our relationships. We want to be right with people. We want to have right relationships. We want to make sure that we're not allowing bitterness, unforgiveness. We want to treat one another rightly. We want to treat the people we work with rightly. We, we want to act in righteousness at work. We're not, we're not stealing supplies from work and bringing them home. We're not going into the back room for endless breaks all day long. We're not, we're not, we're not having break time every time the boss leaves. We, we act righteously before God. We're hungering and thirsting. We want to do what's right with our spouses and our children. We want to do what is right with our neighbors. We want to act in righteousness in all 
of life. It's not righteous to steal or to cheat on our taxes. It isn't righteous. It's not righteous to grumble and complain. See, righteousness applies to all of life. And we want to practice it. Since my dad broke his ankle a couple of weeks ago, I spent a, a, a good amount of time up at the hospital, spent a good amount of time at St. Andrews, and uh, I noticed that in places like that, they have the practice of hygiene. They put reminders up. There's reminders all over the place. There's reminders in every bathroom. Wash your hands. There's antibacterial lotion all over the places. There are boxes of latex gloves in patients' rooms. There are specially marked trash cans. Every needle is individually wrapped, and you don't use a needle more than once. Before they inject the needle, they swab your arm to something to kill the germs. They practice hygiene. They practice cleanliness. At least they're supposed to. And they're reminding all the staff to practice hygiene and cleanliness. Why? Because if we don't, there are consequences. You could say, hey, we have a hospital. But we don't really care how clean it is. Would you want to go there? I'm glad they tell you to wash your hands. I'm glad that the hospital cares about hygiene, and cleanliness. Because there are consequences if you don't practice hygiene. And there are consequences if we don't hunger and thirst and practice righteousness in our lives. There are consequences. Sin has consequences. And so we're to be holy in every single area of our lives. Hunger and thirst. That means holy even in our thoughts, even in private, even when people don't see us. We want to hunger and thirst to be righteous before God. Cursing, dirty jokes, gossip, slander. We want to be righteous with our lips. We want to do those things. We want to be holy with our eyes and turn away from all impurity. Be holy when we're watching television. Holy when we look at magazines, books. So this is an ongoing hunger and an ongoing thirst. It's like the sons of Korah who wrote Psalm 42. Psalm 42 says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for You, O God. My soul thirsts for God the living God, when shall I come and appear before God? See, when we thirst and hunger for righteousness, we're thirsting and hungering for God. That's, that's why. That's why Jesus says, I want you to have maximum joy in God. It's not like Jesus wants to spoil all our fun. He says, I want you to have ultimate joy satisfaction. That's why He says, those, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Think about it. When are we satisfied? All kinds of things are satisfying. Think about being satisfied by a great meal. There's this sense of pleasure. There's this sense of well-being. There's this sense of, oh man, that was great. I, I don't need anything right now. I just stuffed myself. It was so good. 
There's this just sense of joy. It's the opposite of that intense craving of hunger and thirst. When we hunger and thirst for righteousness, God says, I will give you a deep satisfaction in Me. I will satisfy you with righteousness. And I will satisfy you with Myself. We're, we're satisfied with the presence of God Himself. We're filled with praise and thanksgiving and we're tasting and seeing that the Lord is good and we're filled with God's strength and power and filled with new hope and we see that His mercies are new every morning. He restores my soul. Those are the results of thirsting and hungering for righteousness. And the ultimate satisfaction, the ultimate will be seeing Jesus' face. And so 1 John 3, 2 and 3 says, listen to this, Beloved, we're God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, now look at the reasoning here. We shall see him as he is. That's going, to be, that's going to be the most satisfying, the most incredible thing that we have ever experienced is seeing the infinite beauty and glory of Jesus. There is no one, no thing, nothing in this universe more astounding, awesome, beautiful, glorious, and majestic and Jesus, and we will get to look upon Him with our eyes. And why? Why will we be able to do this? How are we going to be able to do this? Because it says, we shall be like Him. What does that mean? It means that through the, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, as we hunger and thirst for righteousness, as we put sin to death, as we seek to obey Jesus, we become more and more conformed to Him. More and more like Him. And then ultimately in our glorified bodies, we'll, we'll display something of, of His beauty shining through us. But we will also display His righteousness and holiness. And because we'll be holy and we'll be like Him, then we can gaze upon His holiness. If we had sin in our lives, if we had impurity in our lives, we would not be able to look upon Him. So what do we do now? Here's the logic. The ultimate satisfaction is seeing Jesus. We can see Jesus because we'll be like Him. How do we get like Him? Everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then we will experience the ultimate satisfaction of seeing Jesus' face. And we need God's help to put sin to death. Like I said, we can't do this in our own power. But we've got to put sin to death. We flee immorality. We put on holiness. We pray, Jesus, give me pure thoughts. Jesus, deliver me from lust. Jesus, help me to love my brother. Jesus, help me to have a good attitude here. Jesus, help me to forgive this person who was rude to me. Help me to thank You, Jesus. 
Help me not to grumble. As we do that, as we hunger and thirst, and as we pray, God will help us and change us. So I just want to say this one more time, especially especially to every young man and every young woman in here, every boy, every girl, every teenager. Sin does not satisfy. It has a temporary pleasure. There's a temporary kind of fun sometimes in sin. But ultimately, in the end, it will leave us empty and thirsty and miserable. In fact, not only does sin not satisfy, it enslaves and crushes us and devastates and ruins us. So what are we going to take away today? Here's what I hope we take away. Let each one of us pursue meekness. Let us not seek to gain the world or get what we want by aggression or asserting ourselves or conquering others, but let us trust the Lord and cultivate faithfulness. Delight ourselves in the Lord. and He will give us all we need. And ultimately, He will give us the new heaven and the new earth So let's pursue meekness in our lives, gentleness. Let us also hunger and thirst for righteousness and seek to practice it in every area of our lives because the reward is ultimate and infinite and full satisfaction in Jesus. And remember, we can't do these things in our own strength. But as we heard earlier today, we have a great high priest who is interceding for us moment by moment. Right now, by name, Jesus is lifting your name before His Father, saying, Father, help her. Give her strength. Give Him strength. We can't do it in our own strength. But our promise is, is that Jesus will help us. Now we have a prayer team. And if you would like prayer for anything at all after we just after we close in a minute, they will be up here afterwards to pray for you and if you if you say, "Boy, I need I need God's help in this area." There's a there's someone who's just I can't be meek around. I'm just constantly tempted to say something. They'll pray for you. They'll pray for you for anything at all, any needs you have. Let's pray together and let's have the band come up. Let's stand. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that by Your Word we can escape the slavery and the kind of wrong thinking that people in the world have and that You show us the way to ultimate joy and satisfaction. Jesus, thank You for giving us Your Word. And we just pray, Lord, that You would help us to do what we've heard this morning. Help us to put it into practice. Help us to be meek. And give us a a deeper hunger and thirst for righteousness. Lord, 
I'm praying for myself first and foremost to give us all of these things, Lord. Meekness and hunger and thirst for righteousness. We ask in your name, Jesus. Amen.